So, welcome to another fantastic episode of PH Divas. I am Zain Yao, representing Humanities, and I'm very excited to have this interview today because this interview has been a year in the making. Ah! Uh, so, I'm very pleased to welcome to my office in London, the heart of Empire, uh, Kairani Baraka. Kairani Baraka. Uh, so I'm very pleased to uh, welcome to the podcast is Kairani Boroka. Yeah. Okay. Um, but you were going by Boroka. Yeah. Indonesian. Well, a lot of Indonesians don't have a surname, so I actually have two names that none, uh, none of which are <laughs> surnames. So Oka is a nickname that I've gone by since I was little. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah. Um, and so what is particularly funny about this is that um, Oka reached out to me before I moved to London about the podcast. But then I noticed that um, she was located in London. I was like, well, wouldn't it be easier than interviewing from Vancouver to actually wait till I'm in London because that's an eight hour time difference at least? <laughs> like, oh, yes, that could make sense. And so since then, because um, I had a really busy year, obviously, first year's faculty, you've had a really big, busy year, we haven't been able to meet up. And yet we've had a number of near misses uh, because of the fantastic work that Oka does in like the performance and uh, literary scene here. So, oh, thank you. And likewise, <laughs> we have a lot of connections through the BIPOC creative community in London. Yeah. Which, despite the vast size of London, seems to be um, pretty tightly knit, and so many fantastic things are going on. So, just to give you listeners sort of a sense of it, so I think I heard from you like last July. I moved here also in July. I so happened to visit the Institute for Contemporary Arts because I have a friend who's a curator there. And I went to listen to this one exhibit and as I was listening to it, I was like, oh, this person is working on like representations of Indonesia and disability and colonialism. 19th century. And 19th century. And I was like, <laughs> wait, this sounds really familiar. I mean, and I was like, I'm sure this is a rich field, but it also sounds exactly like that person who just reached out to us and what they did. And so then I think I sent you a message being like, I think I'm in your art exhibition right <laughs> yeah. now. Yeah. Which was beautiful. And you got to, cause, because, um, so the exhibit was a performance installation that was on the top floor of the ICA and it was called Anna Nomenclature. It's on YouTube and along with the Q&A that I did afterwards with Aditi Jaganathan, who is um, also doing her PhD at uh, Brunel and had brilliant questions. Um, so yeah, it was opened with, a live performance but then it became the recording of my voice in the room along with these mm. two projections um and it was just so nice that you sent a photo of it in action and yeah I mean I reached out to you and Liz because um as I mentioned earlier and, and when we we're just speaking just before this interview uh, somebody had mentioned in one of the whatsapp groups I am part of of uh, <laughs> women of color doing PhDs in the arts which is kind of a small world um podcasts that we could listen to to sort of help us during the PhD process and one of them was Secret Feminist Agenda and you were on the first episode of that oh, yes. actually so <laughs> super I, small I feel very special hey Hannah <laughs> <laughs> hey Hannah mm-hmm. um and PhD buzz and I started listening and I thought oh this is brilliant this is exactly you know the kind of of people I, I like to listen to so I just said hey and yeah and here we are a year later and so it was lovely to have that and then also you were in the audience at one of my shows yes so like so first we had we had this exhibit and maybe um we can go back to get a, give a bit more detail because I think that what you're doing there was so fascinating about Gauguin and stuff like that and so yes the, I was in the audience for this Halloween event on, I think Asian Ghosts was what it was called. Yeah. And so a friend here who... <laughs> hungry actually, Ghosts, Yeah, I Hungry think. Ghosts. Yeah. And what was funny is that I went with a friend who was also a podcast listener that reached out to me once she heard that I was moving to London. No way! 
Yeah, Carrie oh. Jo. Um, oh, and so, okay. because she's like, hey, want to go to this thing? I was like, oh, this looks fantastic. And then I was sitting there, and then I was like, wait a second, I think I recognize that person. <laughs> the woman with the enormous silver weird witch's hat that kept <laughs> falling over. <laughs> yeah, um, that was lovely that you came up to me afterwards. It was really nice. I was there with um, a bunch of other Asian performers who all performed um, pieces on the occult or traditional ghost stories, and it was a fun Halloween night. Yeah. Yeah, and so... And now, again, a year later, we're finally sitting down and having a proper chat. And also, I think that's funny is that we've given our listeners a good sense, perhaps, of like the richness of what you do, but you haven't quite formally introduced yourself. So, wanted to give us a little bio? Where okay. are you located? What are you researching <laughs> right now? Sure. Um, my name is Kairani Baroka, or Oka, um, as Zain mentioned, and I am three months away from submission (laughs) i know that is a hungry ghost story the phd is a hungry ghost (laughs) i think we can agree Uh, yeah the phd is uncanny it's grotesque it's monstrous yeah yes it's it's my halloween costume this year probably (laughs) it will be my phd um three months away from submission uh in a phd by practice in visual cultures at goldsmiths and um yeah i'm looking forward to speaking a little bit about the differences between a phd by practice um or and a phd that's practice led which is a different thing and a phd which is um a critical phd which are the you know three different kinds of phds you can have at least in my department of visual cultures and i really don't think i could have done any other kind of phd it's basically it's allowed me to be an artist and create this project that i've been thinking about for eight years now um called Anna Infinite uh so in 2011 I was uh, I just finished my master's degree at NYU Tisch um in the interactive media department ITP uh and I came across this painting of Anna La Javanese that's the name of the girl in the painting um at least according to records um and it was painted by Paul Gauguin circa 1893 1894 it was a girl in the nude on a chair with a monkey at her feet. So, of course, mm. the way all us Javanese girls generally sit with oh, monkeys at our feet naked and, and open to, you know, yeah. <laughs> to sexual advance. And I was just going to say quickly, um, Gauguin, for some of our listeners who might not be familiar, is, of course, a very famous 20th century painter who is particularly known for going to the South Pacific. and Yes, Tahiti. And he painted many young Tahitian women. Um, he was buds with uh, Vincent van Gogh and he was bros with a lot of other art bros at the time in Paris and uh, where this painting was created and I was really fascinated because I felt that there were so few depictions that I'd come across of Indonesian women um, such as myself. I'm also Javanese and Minangkabau so specifically a Javanese woman um, in Europe particularly in Paris and I thought who is this girl what is her story and what I discovered was that essentially all the stories about her as you as you heard in my nomenclature show um, have been filled with clashing facts about her mm. and whereas there has been so much detail paid to Gauguin's body of work as one of the quote-unquote masters of, you know, the father of primitivism, so to speak, mm-hmm. uh, and, you know, so much nitpicking academically about his legacy. What is has been written, both in fiction, such as in um, Mario Vargas Llosa's novel uh, The Way to Paradise, uh, which is sort of a biopic novel about Gauguin and his, his proving grandmother, um, but also mentions Anna, uh, and in, in academic work, 
has all these clashing stories about who Anna is. She's described variously as half Japanese, half Dutch, half Indian, half Malay, Polynesian, Sinhalese. At some point, there's a comparison of her lips to African lips. She must have been from Africa because she had thick mm-hmm. lips, which is, yes, again, a very mm-hmm. anthropological yeah. sort yes. of conjecture on her background. And I argue, I mean, I'm arguing many things in this thesis, primarily the, the notion that Anna could have been a pained body. Mm. Um, and it is fascinating to me as a, as a woman who lives with chronic pain and a disabled creator that I've come across early on, I, I came across a lot of um, opposition to this interpretation because, you know, she doesn't seem pained or maybe she could. She's sort of like sitting a certain way. But as every person who has experienced chronic pain knows, anybody can be in pain at any given moment. We can't know just from the way they operate, right? Exactly. Because of you know how pervasive ableism is we are taught to think that a person is um abled before they are not abled right or disabled um so that's that's what i'm arguing but also you know all this anna talk in academia so far has been made of fictions essentially right because these are all facts that contradict each other Mm. um or maybe not maybe she is all of those things right she could be Dutch, Japanese, you know, Sinhalese, Polynesian, she could be of all these different ethnicities, but essentially it's based on conjecture a lot of the time, Mm -hmm. right? Or no specific source. And um, what's terrifying is that, you know, Gauguin was a recorded domestic abuser. His son wrote about him beating up his his wife, his Danish wife. And, uh, you know, in the book Gauguin in Erotic Life, (laughs) biographer Nancy Will Matthews writes a lot about Gauguin's fascination with, you know, rape fantasies of, yeah, with, um, with, his sexual obsession with violence as part of sex in a way that is non-consensual for both men and women. And so all of these paintings of, you know, young, young Tahitian women, he, he wed um, a Tahitian girl who was 13 oh, before, God. right before he was with Anna, um, who is always written of as being around 13. And here I have to credit my friend Ala Yunus, who is an amazing Jordanian artist and curator, because I once gave a presentation on this, um, at Goldsmiths and she was doing a master's in digital cultures and I said yeah I don't know why she's always written of as consistently around 13 even though all these other facts about where she came from how she came to be you know with Gauguin again the, the implication is that they're sexually together even though you can't prove that right but that adds to the mystique of this master right mm-hmm. that he's also has mastery over exotic Indonesian girls right mm-hmm. um and Ala Yunus said you know it's probably because that was the age of consent in France at the time, and she was right, you know. Oh so she's Anna's automatically made more adult, and the relationship is always legitimized as being a consensual sexual relationship, even mm. though um, the most reliable source that I have read uh, says that Anna was probably, very probably, like kidnapped and, and human trafficked over to Paris at the insistence of an opera singer, Madame Nina Pack, who. Uh, wanted a quote-unquote little negro girl and she was friends with a banker who worked in the quote-unquote Malayan Isles mm. and not long after uh this is according to the biography of um Ambrose Voyard who was a uh, um an art dealer and worked with Gauguin and many other mm-hmm. famous white male painters <laughs> and he said that this this girl was found uh half Indian half Malayan was his interpretation of her ethnicity um was found with a plaque on her that said, you know, in French, I'm, you know, please give me to Madame Nina Pack, I'm from Java. And a policeman brought her over to Nina Pack. So we're already looking at the genesis of the Anna story being white women in the arts, 
financial institutions, which it still is today because this painting is now um, owned by uh, a quote, and it's in quote unquote private collection. I've, I've been trying to hunt it down for eight years, mm -hmm. and I think I have a good idea of which family owns it, which I cannot say at the moment, <laughs> but I, I'm pretty sure I know who mm -hmm. owns it. Um, and it's interesting also the secrecy behind that, right, and why it's, it's secret. Um, and also um, police, and literally police state. Yeah. And, <laughs> so, and also there's something about that the original hunger was hunger for blackness and the substitution of a different brown body. It is that. fascinating. I, yeah. I mean, I am sure there are other academics who are more well-versed on this than I am, but it was the first time that I'd read of an Indonesian, of somebody who would be considered Indonesian um, today being called a Negro girl. Uh -huh. um, and yeah, it, it, hopefully, you know, the good that can come out of this horror. I mean, I, I hate putting it in those terms. I won't actually. But I will say that it is sort of an impetus towards more black and brown solidarity mm -hmm. um, in a way that, of course, it's a lot. There's a lot more anti-blackness um, mm -hmm. in the world. Um, and uh, but it is, you know, I think there's a lot of anti-blackness within, <laughs> you know, um, Southeast Asia as well. And I think that it, it's just uh, it's a good reminder of the fact that, you know, how racialized subjection works mm -hmm. um, across boundaries like that. Yeah, it also reminds me of this fascinating presentation I went to a session on, on indigeneity in the 19th century when people are trying to like fit all these new peoples they're quote unquote discovering into existing racial schemas that mm. like, I think Polynesians were racialized as being more white but Micronesians were uh, racialized as being black and that that's how they were referred to oh, by anthropologists for instance. I didn't know and that. the way that that sort of has mapped on in different ways and that's why I think like the term black has been used well, in Australia to talk about indigenous people there, right. but also I think um, from some Maori activism is my understanding. Mm. Um, and I think like now, obviously there's a reassessment about how those terms are being used. But even now I've met an uh, Australian person who says that for them it's very odd to hear black because in the Australian context, you always think of indigenous um, Australians first. Yeah. And black fellas, so to speak, is, yeah, as, mm. as the term there. And it's interesting also the anti-Papuan sentiment in Indonesia because West Papua is part of Indonesia oh, okay. now and it's the location of the Freeport gold mine which is the largest gold mine in the world and it's also full of a lot of military suppression um, mm -hmm. and a lot of violence has gone on in West Papua continues to and a lot of environmental destruction as well and so um, we would say you know in Indonesia oh um, orang Papua orang hitam you know like they're black or dark people um, so there is anti-blackness in that localized context as well which uh -huh. is yeah, very unfortunate. Um, so all of these things came up in my research of Anna. And so for the past eight years, I've been creating stories, some of them science fiction or fantasy, but I'm also interested in subverting the notions of those disciplinary names. Mm -hmm. um, when you take into account Javanese spiritualities, for instance, where gods and goddesses can be in both past, present, and future, right? And what do you call that? Is that fantasy? Is that just reality for some people? Mm -hmm. Or according to some spiritualities? Um, and I've been making art, digital art is, is my primary motive of artistic practice along with performance. And uh, so I've, I've made um, performance installations that involve the visual art that I make along with the performance. Um, there was one in Salt Basel last year where called um, it Selected Annas, where I perform as different possible Annas. Oh, wow, that's so cool. Oh, <laughs> But I actually found the Anna nomenclature performance at the ICA, which happened right after the Basel performance, to be... Um, it felt so much more right and so much more cathartic because in that performance I'm speaking to Anna, right? As just mm -hmm. Oka. <laughs> just speaking to the different possible Annas and that felt more honest because 
um, it felt kind. Of, I didn't want to sort of usurp her <laughs> different possible spirits, even though it was you know a performance. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it felt more real to just be myself and try and speak to her spirit in the room. Um, and I in the IC performance in that uh, initiated the, the the exhibition. I performed from within the outline of Anna. So there's an, a version of the paint. I've made t- a lot of versions of this painting. Um, one of which. I projected from the roof of the ICA onto the floor, and there's an outline of her in white. And throughout the performance, I reinscribed that outline in white crayon, mm. which looks like chalk, and I perform from within the outline. It's very meta, not very subtle. That's how I roll. <laughs> it's like, look, I arise, get it? I'm a Javanese girl today. <laughs> Connecting and trying to connect. Um, what happened to her then to how we treat black and brown children today, right? Mm-hmm. So I uh, juxtapose, if you'll remember, um, what I'm performing with headlines about ICE raids in the States and the concentration mm-hmm. camps that are currently going on and children being held there, um, about uh, the abuses facing foreign domestic workers because Anna was essentially mm-hmm. originally, according to one version of, of her origin story, a domestic worker, a foreign domestic worker. Mm. Um, who was then, yeah, delivered into the hands of a, a known abuser. And uh, it's, you know, her stories are sometimes written of as, oh, they found her in the streets or brothels of Montmartre. You know, it wow. just becomes, it's fascinating how these categories of domestic worker, sex worker, um, street child, all of these are sort of alighted as though, oh, she's some kind of riffraff. Mm-hmm. And um, so I was reading about how the notion of the state's care of children and child rights had only just begun, I think, a decade before in France, the 1880s. And so this notion of the state having to care for um, children who weren't with parents is, is relatively new. And I feel as though, um, well, one theory that I have anyway is that if you say that she was a former child sex worker, or, or not child sex worker, because she was regarded not as a child, right, as an adult, mm-hmm. then her being in the possession of Gauguin is better than having her be in a profession that sullies the quote-unquote virility of France. <laughs> you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I know it's very it's very twisted, but um, there are all these justifications for why she's been written of in a certain way, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, nobody ever says, there's a theory that she was uh, born to brown parents in France, right? Mm-hmm. She's always assumed to be from overseas, and that's yeah. it's, it's. That's also a pervasive stereotype, of course. Yes, yeah. of course, that you have to be from somewhere else, mm-hmm. right? And so, um, there's so many stereotypes applied to how Anna is written about that are really pervasive today, and nobody has called out how explicitly, like how these different stories about her are all regarded as true and canon even though they could also be regarded as fictions, right? Like, nobody in in the studies is like, oh, there have also been conflicting tales of who Anna is, Mm -hmm. right? They all just like to say, oh, but because she's seen as a minor character or or in service of the Goga myth. Yeah. She's always in service of the Goga myth, so I'm centering her, and I'm writing a book called Anna Infinite that combines all of these things. Yeah. Um, So fingers crossed that's, that's coming out, and I just kind of want to give room to other possible interpretations of her. And it's been a really fascinating journey of also discovering um, 
my own Javanese and Minang spiritual heritages because there are disabled gods in Javanese spirituality, mm. which I didn't even realize because um, Dutch, the Dutch medical system, particularly missionary hospitals, sort of instituted ableism into Java um, with the concept of, you know, the medical model, if you, if you have something that's non-normative, then it must be cured, right? Yeah. And that's become so incredibly pervasive to like a really horrific degree now in Indonesia. I mean, there are lots of girls still who are, um, the word is dipasong, which are they're basically tied up, they're chained if they're disabled. What? Yeah. Yeah. It's very, it's, it's really, it's really dire. It's really upsetting. And it is especially upsetting because I know that's not how we always viewed disability, right? Mm -hmm. Javanese people, you know, before colonialism, disability was regarded as being closer to um, the gods, right, or closer to some kind of deity, but it's also there's also been sort of a, a a weird interpretation of Islam, which is the charity model, and this is all work that has been done by my colleague Islam Amex Tohari. He wrote a book called Disability in Java. Um, he's also a disabled um, academic who is from Indonesia, mm-hmm. um, and he wrote about at least four different models for disability in Java. So it's been fascinating. You know, if I, if we see the Anala Javanese is 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 disabled which model would you fall into or would you fall mm-hmm. into a different model entirely um so it's been really a process of connecting with that and uh yeah it's it's strange too because gods will be disabled but then also they all sometimes there are transformations like they were disabled they had say a facial disfiguration or a skin disease and then they were cured right so then what <laughs> you know is the is the disability also part of there are different ways you can interpret disability god story so to speak uh-huh. um that i've been rediscovering in this whole on a process and i can't believe i'm going to be done with a project soon but i have been obsessed with this girl and this painting for eight years because i've just always seen her as a child and if you look at photos of girls that are presented as her and again sometimes they're labeled as polynesian <laughs> and sometimes with a totally different name like the same photo of a girl has mm-hmm. been labeled on the internet as both Anal Javanese and one of Gauguin's Tahitian consorts, right? Oh, okay. Because they just can't distinguish between brown girls. We all look the same. <laughs> we all look the same. Um, and yeah, a real feeling of wanting to protect her and th- them, I should say, because there might be more than one mm-hmm. Anna, right? Mm-hmm. Because if you can't distinguish between us, then there could have been a few. Yeah. So it's just really... Um, it's a it's obviously there's a lot of violence that underlies all of this writing on her in academia and and how she's portrayed in the arts and how girls are expected to study this painting as a form of artistic mastery when it's also a document of very likely abuse Mm -hmm. like that's it's thank you so much like i think it's just such a fascinating intervention like i would say i feel like i'm part of the population who who enjoys art and like has like a, 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 like an art history 101 sense of things and so and so coming across your exhibit as I did the ICA in my first couple of weeks was just so revelatory because oh thank you so yeah, much because I don't I don't know of course about the Tahitian aspects of it but I had not heard at all about the Indonesian ones and I just feel like I learned so much and I, I just leave and learn more which is wonderful oh yeah. thanks I guess that's why we do PhDs dun, 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 dun. <laughs> <Very true. laughs> so to go back to how you were saying how we have three different models for PhDs, I think that's really fascinating because um, I yeah. think that everyone I've, we've interviewed so far, and both Liz and myself, like do the what are the critical PhD approach because it's like mm. very research based. Yes. Um, and I assume like when you were like, oh, PhD pra- 
practice that. I think I know what that means. But then there are like two different types. Could you explain what the bled one is? Sure. Okay, so one thing that you should know is that nobody knows how to define these things exactly because every project is different. Um, mm. But I, uh, so in my department at least, so the Department of Visual Cultures has three strands, visual cultures, curatorial knowledge, and research architecture. Actually, the research architecture people were nominated for a Turner Prize recently oh, wow. their work is really awesome um yeah but so in all of these there's at least actually at least in my strand of visual cultures there's practice based which is what i'm doing where the majority of what i'm going to be judged on is my creative output i also have to write fifty thousand words critical assessment mm. of what i'm writing um, and then there's practice led which is i think less practice um oriented but there's still practice involved and there's critical work involved and then there's straight up critical which some of my friends are doing um usually friends who are curators say Mm -hmm. who are just writing i think it's a hundred thousand words or something like that of critical writing but with no practice even though they all practice a lot on the side as curators etc but um it's not counted towards their phd per se so i feel like i really couldn't have done any other kind of phd i've been considering a phd since i was an undergrad um, it's interesting looking back, right, and seeing what in undergrad were you fascinated by that made you, that led you to this point where, you know, Zion, you have an office and it's awesome and has a sword. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I, I, I can't I believe. mentioned it, but yeah, I guess if, if any of you uh, listeners come by my office, you may notice the fact that I do have a sword that I got um, from my family, from my uncle, actually. I got the, the sword itself for my BA and the sheath is for my PhD. It's incredible it's so i it's great it's so great <laughs> sitting in front of a sword um so for me when i was an undergrad i remember really liking the courses um literary theory intro to lit theory i believe visual anthropology at a really great professor shout out to hilda Lorenz, who's now um uh still in the northeast an academic really awesome and uh and i also loved intro to creative writing and I, I never in my head did I think, because I always thought, oh, I'm not an artist, I'm not a writer. It took me a long time to become comfortable with calling myself an artist and a writer because I felt that I didn't deserve to call myself. And I think that's a real process that, especially for women of color, we have to mm-hmm. um, reassert our right to call ourselves those things. Yeah. Uh, and eventually, because my master's at NYU Tisch was um, an art degree, basically, um, I didn't have to write a thesis for it. I wrote, you know, sort of a project paper. Uh, I was looking into PhD spare practice at that point when I realized, well, A, I became, I, I became, um, increasingly also became disabled. I had nerve damage. And so then I was researching, okay, disabled artist. I guess I am one now. <laughs> who, do, who else does this? And I came across the work of Petra Cuppers, who is a colleague of mine and has been an inspiration. She's at the University of Michigan, the English department. She does disability literature. She also um, uh, is a wheelchair dancer, is a choreographer, and I thought, oh my God, you can be an artist and have a PhD and you know, sort of contribute to the discourse around disability and the arts and feminism. This is great, I wanna be her, I wanna be like her. Um, so that sort of started off my journey of just um, honing my abilities as an artist and working in residencies for a few years. And um, then I applied to the PhD at Goldsmiths and I really don't think I could have done it any other way. I don't think I could have done a critical or even a practice-led PhD because I sort of learn I, I experiment by by creating things and I figure things out by making them so some of the things that I told you I didn't realize until you know I, I, I I'm in the process of making something or or I have made it um so that's yeah so for my Viva 
um, I'm going to be presenting a portfolio as well as the 50,000 words of, mm-hmm. of critical writing. And for my upgrade, I fully um, performed in body in blue body paint. Oh, that's so amazing. On a carpeted floor, so I had to make sure that, that the paint didn't get on the carpet. That was something I did not anticipate. But um, yeah, so it's been, it's been fun and great. And also, as with all PhDs, right? Uh, stressful and challenging. Yeah. <laughs> I guess I, got, I have a couple of questions that I want to want to ask, which is like your experience of translating different the different academic systems. Of course, mm. selfishly wondering about that as someone who's doing it myself, but also doing graduate school as a person with a disability. Oh, so when you say across different academic systems, do you mean like, like from the U.S. American and oh, the British yeah. one? Just because I find that they're so strikingly different, and the orientation to academia seems so different to me. Hmm. At least in it, uh, circles. Would you mind elaborating a little bit? Oh, things like even like length of PhD and the most le- basic. Oh yeah, kinds. of course, yeah. Uh, the amount of funding is so different. Like there's so many unfunded PhDs in the UK, which mm. I think, which really bothers me. Yeah, there are even fewer people of color here, at least in the circles absolutely. I've seen so far. Absolutely. And so it's like the, the climate, I think, is is very different. The discussions are different in the fields that I'm interested in. But also just like the shape of it, because the degree systems on every level are also so different. Yeah. Feel has, it's very interesting for me to be part of the system when I haven't gone through it myself. So I feel oh, a bit yeah. of a disadvantage in terms of trying to give people advice sometimes. And I also try to admit that, like, obviously I have a bias for the system that I came up with. Right, in the States. Because, yeah. Right. So I should say that I got my BA also from Smaller Brother Arts College in the States. Um, and... Yeah, I've been funded throughout my academic career, for which I'm very, very grateful. I'm currently on a scholarship from the oh Indonesian government now. Yeah, of course. <laughs> I really couldn't have been... I, I don't know how my friends who are unfunded do it. They have to work in, you know, ridiculous amounts of hours to sustain themselves. And a lot of them end up doing it part-time, right? Because that's how you do it, is you work alongside mm-hmm. and you work part-time. And in London, where everything's expensive as oh hell. Oh my god, anyway. it really is. Yeah, so there's that. And I, I feel very lucky to have gone through the UK system and uh, rather than the American in the sense that, well, there are pros and cons, I think. Because in the States, you have to do courses first, mm-hmm. right, for a number of years. And in the UK, you do... I did one seminar course that was mandatory, and that's it for one year. It was optional the second year. Mm-hmm. And um, I audited one course, Transcultural Memory, uh, and that was it. I was off to <laughs> the races. And um, I think... I am grateful that I, I had the time to explore uh, and that also because I've been thinking about this project surrounding Anna for eight years, you know, by the time I came to London in 2015, I had really um, narrowed down what I wanted to do with it. And as you know, your proposal going into a PhD is very different from how what yes. the PhD looks like at the end. It's sort of a caricature of what you intended um, to, to, to create. But uh, it is still along those lines. So I feel lucky that I got the experience of working as a, a, you know, a full-time artist for years before I got into the PhD because I was very certain about what I wanted to do in my project. Um, and of course... In, in the process of learning, <laughs> in the process of reading more about, you know, disability theory, affect theory, visual cultures theory, um, all of these fields that I'm a part of, and yeah, 19th century <laughs> European art history, which I, I, again, I had no training in art history, I'd never taken an art history mm, course, basically. Oh, wow. okay. Yeah, um, 
I just read a lot about this one painting. Um, but so because I had been just fixated on this one painting um, out of all of art history, which is kind of a weird <laughs> approach, um, I learned so much in the process of research. And of course, that changed, you know, the exact focus of my PhD. Um, and if, I, think, I think it always for everybody gets narrower and narrower and narrower. Mm -hmm. And you realize that, oh, just making this one small point actually does change the field. Yes. And you have to be okay with that. And I think that it is important for me to be like, yeah, my point is Anna could have been disabled. She could have been in chronic pain. I mean, she was likely in chronic pain. She was a kid alone, a brown girl in Paris in the 1800s. There are all the photos of her. None of them are with any other um, bodies that present as children, that present as people of color, that present as um, girls. Mm -hmm. They're all with bodies that appear to be heterosexual cis men, mm. according to our our cis hetero world that we yeah. live in right so i mean that's terrifying she was she always looks so isolated but the interpretations of those images are you know oh yeah she was with her boyfriend gohan you know there's even though there's no proof right it's <sighs> it's yeah. and to me it's like well she was this is child abuse <laughs> i mean it's so clear to me and it's not clear to other people even other people who um may proclaim themselves to be feminist right because mm -hmm it's been so ingrained in us how to interpret this painting right in mm -hmm. a very specific way according to Gauguin's case um so even other women uh, I remember I gave a guest lecture in an art department and they're masters of curating and um in the middle of my lecture about my research I was interrupted by um a white woman academic who said you know brooke shields was also sexualized in photographs of her when she was very young she was a mm -hmm. teenager and i said that's horrible too this is that i'm not pitting you know yeah, abuse girls against abuse girls and also that's such a more famous example the and Robert prince is the name of the artist uh i i'm i'm not sure okay. but i i do know what you're i did know i do know what you're talking yeah. about um and i had to tell her you know that is also terrible. I think bodies that present as girls, women, non-binary, everywhere more vulnerable to violence, right, mm -hmm. than male-presenting bodies. Um, even though obviously queer-presenting male bodies are, mm -hmm. are at more risk of violence. But what I'm saying is that black and brown women and girls and non-binary people are more vulnerable to violence, especially at that time in the 1890s, especially in, in France, right? Mm -hmm. um, at a time during which Indonesia was still very much a Dutch colony. And it, it's interesting how um, in the Q&A for Anna nomenclature, I talk about how the Dutch and the French are in cahoots about Anna, right? Mm. Because Indonesia was a Dutch colony, and yet it's so easily absorbed into the French state's idea of colonized nations. Yeah. Um, that, yeah, these are things that are obvious to us. But I guess this, this woman sort of was very defensive about this for some reason and i i felt really sad actually that that it's so predictable i guess it's happened. such a it's almost a the level of cliche in terms of the interruption of you being invited to give this guest lecture on this very specific important thing where you give all this context for the specificity of the colonialism and the racism and yet this white woman academic wants to insert like a 20th century example i think what from the 80s or something and just because, like, almost being terrified of the decentering happening. Yes, and it was very much, I realize, a, a notion of, oh, if we acknowledge how black and brown girls are vulnerable, then that means white girls can't be acknowledged as vulnerable, which is a messed up thing to think. <laughs> and it would just, it makes no sense. But mm -hmm. that's the level of white fragility we're dealing with here, and I've certainly come across that 
um, in other occasions, let's just say, <laughs> in, yeah. in presenting this research, which is difficult. Um, because, you know, the level of, um, of diminishment of, of, of Anna, of, of she or they, um, is endemic and institutional. I'm a member of the Tate Library. I mean, I've performed it, you know, at the Tate, and I, I get a lot of enjoyment out of um, exhibits I, I see there, um, I've seen there, but, you know, I'm a member of the Tate Library, and I was, I, I remember thinking, you know what, what if I just, I wonder if she's been mislabeled here, and I wonder if, mm. if um, she's been labeled as something else, so I searched for Gauguin, you know, nude, and I saw a Polynesian girl nude on a chair with a monkey at her feet. It was labeled as Polynesian, and it had been taken out by the artist Rosalind Ashashibi, um, who actually teaches in Goldsmith's art department. So I contacted her, and I said, did you know that this print is actually of a girl called Anna Javanese? And she was like, no, and why would she know, right? Because at the Tate Library, it's labeled as a Polynesian girl. Yeah. Right? So the myth of Anna as just being sort of every brown girl, <laughs> every potential black, brown, Asian, indigenous girl, um, influences contemporary art. Yeah, so it was... Um, yeah, so I, I saw this this um, mislabeling of Anna, which is still there in the Tay archives. I last checked it in 2019, and it's still mislabeled as Polynesian Girl in the Nude. Um, or maybe not. Maybe Anna was of Polynesian. Is that right? The thing is, we don't know. That's the mm-hmm. point, is that we don't know. And yet... But the thing about Western Enlightenment and the need to fixate on... Uh, sorry, the need to have fixity of things, to have things be certain... Mm-hmm. And the taxonomic impulse. Exactly. Precisely. Yeah. And being precise, <laughs> right, about what a person is, like, what we are. And obviously, as you and I both know, a lot of people will ask, hey, what are you, right? Mm-hmm. Or where are you from? Or and, and this need to know and to determine geographically, specifically where, even if there's no solid basis for it, even if it's a made-up thing. Mm-hmm. But they just need to be able to say with certainty, oh, you know, one of those colonies. It doesn't matter what colony she's from as long as she's from a colony, which I find fascinating. Mm-hmm. Well, that's absolutely fascinating. And so I think that it's, it's clear how your engagement with disability studies, disability activism comes through in your art. And I was wondering, what is, how does it come through in your navigations of higher education in general? And here I'm thinking about how, like, there's being more, I think there's more discourse a little bit about disability and go, in academia, for instance, right. like the rhetoric of fast versus slow academia. There's a recent piece in the Chronicle that had to do with how so many people defer going to the doctor for conditions until oh, yes. they got their, get their first faculty job, and then they could finally afford to get the surgeries, That's operations, and the medication. Yeah. Um, and I know that uh, one of my loved ones uh, has a chronic disability, and every every year they have to renew their, their recognition within the university system of their need for accessibility. Even though, it, even though it's chronic, it's completely incurable, and yet every time they have to prove with doctor's notes that it's a thing. So for me, in my case, I'm very fortunate in that um, I've never had to prove it because when I first arrived in the UK, I couldn't walk a block Mm. and I had to lie down for all my lectures. Um, So I've made a lot of, and again, this notion of improvements, et cetera, is different to each person, right? But just for my life, an improvement in terms of like how far I'm able to walk, how much I can go, how long I can go without having to lie down. And lying down while doing my art has been a big part of my art and have and 
people being able to lie down while they see my art has been important. So I don't know if you remember, but in the ICA Metro, there were beanbags around. Oh, yes. Around. Yeah. Very comfy. Yeah. Oh, great. I'm glad. <laughs> um, so I, that, I'm glad that they, they provided those because it's always been really important to me to be like, you can really lie down because I've always felt the ableist, the overwhelming ableist nature of like, oh, you have to sit up straight. You have to sit up, even though it would be really painful for me, right? So... Um, yeah, uh, being a disabled person, and again, I prefer the terminology of disabled person rather than person with disability. Oh, okay, sorry. Um, no, it's fine. It's uh, which is generally in my cohort of you know activists, disability scholars who are very leftist. Mm-hmm. We don't say person with a disability because that implies that it's you know a, oh, okay. a negative condition, right? Usually, and again, it's very it's different from person to person. A lot of disa- uh, disabilities are are societally imposed, right? For instance, to get here to your office, like you know, you kindly guided me to a lift mm-hmm. because. Um, I can't take stairs. I'm step free, mm-hmm. right? So, um, just in terms of academic buildings, uh, not all of them being accessible, and rooms within academic buildings mm-hmm. n- not always being accessible. That's one thing, right? And you know, I couldn't uh, walk very far when I first arrived here. So the accessibility isn't just in terms of lifts, obviously, but also the length of of time uh, it takes to get from one place to another, which is something that people don't usually think about. Um, but certainly, I've had issues. I mean, it took me. I will say it took me three years to get my needs form to my department somehow. It got lost in the mm-hmm. bureaucratic mess up that comes with, you know, lack of funding, you know, decreased funding towards disability offices. So, mm-hmm. you know, they're they're really overworked there. But it took, yeah, three years. And, and I'm still, you know, like I, I have disability taxis to go to and from school um, and to Senate House Library from my, from my home. But... Uh, there have been a lot of holdups with that this year it took me until until very recently like for a period of months I just had no access to these taxis and I just take I mean I'm still doing that now I'm having Mm -hmm. to take Ubers and having them reimbursed because they haven't paid the invoices to the taxi company it's um so a lot of things related to that I've experienced verbal abuse from people who are lecturers with regards to my disability um some of some instances inflected by racial uh, you know uh, being racialized as well mm-hmm. um and yeah there's <laughs> there's been a lot of things that but you know being disabled has been incredibly empowering for me because i just i have i have, have really had to assert my right to be in a room and to take up space and to move in the way i would like to move and to if i need to lie down i need to lie down um and I don't take shit from people. It's amazing. It's, well, I've learned not to take shit from people because of having to do this so often, mm-hmm. unfortunately, but it's really built up that muscle. I think so. I generally am quite forceful about telling people that that's not appropriate. Um, but it is a huge issue, I think. Um, also, I mean, events and art spaces aren't always accessible. And it's interesting, the intersection of coloniality and disability, because I remember one... One venue I performed at, I remember, um, you know, because I could, I, I'm step free. Oh, we have to take you to the lift. Oh, it's in the back. It's in the former servants' quarters. Oh wow, so, that's very marked. It, so yeah, it was very meta, going up in that elevator, and thinking this is literally where all the brown people had to yeah. go up. Uh, you know, so I mean, disabled bodies are marked as other and lesser than brown black bodies historically have as well. And there's some amazing work coming up in academia um, around uh, racialization and ableism um, that has been really fascinating in, 
and related to sci-fi in particular, mm-hmm. actually, right? So I've been really drawing on the work of a lot of scholars in the States, but also elsewhere, but I really think there needs to be even more decolonization of disability studies. Mm-hmm. There's the hashtag disability to white, which I believe Alyssa Thompson created. And because even though 80% of, around 80% apparently of disabled people in the world live in quote unquote developing countries, it's obvious, you know, Jasper Pua has a book called um, The Right to Maim mm-hmm. about how you know, there are regions of the world that are more, that are, as a part of capitalism, bodies that are maimed and debilitated more, even within the United States, right, like sites like Flint, Michigan, and Mm -hmm. um, communities of color, so, um, as well as places like Palestine, and places like Indonesia, where I, you know, didn't have medication for my condition for, like, four years, Um, so, it's, there's so much richness, and as we were talking about earlier, you know, the there are different models for disability just within the island of Java, right, mm. that aren't talked about. And these offer ways that are not the, you know, the uh, colonized, ableist notion of, of, of disability, but not enough people know about these things, and there's so much internalized ableism. Mm-hmm. Um, and, yeah, I think there's so much more to be done, and I'm just excited to live in this moment and get to research in this moment where, where fascinating work is, is coming out. Mm. And I, this is so helpful for me because I have disability studies, I feel, is one of the areas that I have personal investments in, um, but also like it's not quite part of you know, my work. So I educate myself about not just because in the professional sense, but again, because loved ones and like even I am affected by it. I don't really talk about it in the podcast, but there's so many fantastic conversations that are coming out of it that have been feel really privileged to listen to and I think and also I'm so sorry that I think I completely misunderstood the phrase but I feel as you like the people first right there's people first versus right um uh so people with disabilities is 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 a term that I don't personally like because I'm a disabled person and a lot of it is societal Mm -hmm. and also but it varies right some people are disabled by their conditions and they don't think it but I think every disability has a social dimension to it Mm -hmm. right because there's so much variability that is marked by race and capital and power right Mm -hmm. of who gets access to medications who gets access to access right (laughs) who gets to access actual like literal spaces um and and there's so uh, no nobody can ever know everything about every kind of disabled experience because there's so many different Mm -hmm. there's so much variety in human bodies you know i mean i've had to learn so much from the autistic community for instance about what autism is like and what autistic lives are like and i've had to learn a lot from you know deaf communities and Mm -hmm. i you know because i don't um, consider myself part of those communities and and i've had to re-educate myself a lot but also to understand that there's no way that any one person can know because there's so many different kinds of bodies so it's a a a matter of yeah centering every experience right and not having um overwhelming whiteness take over disability studies or overwhelming um american centrism or eurocentrism um and that's 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 still something that is i think really important for academia to acknowledge especially when a lot of people only read papers that are written in English, right? Mm-hmm. And a lot mm-hmm. of papers that aren't in English aren't translated. <laughs> and and universities outside of um, Western countries sometimes can't have access to journals that cost an arm and a leg to, mm-hmm. you know, to access. Um, so there's a lot of that disparity going on. But it is like the best. It's the best room for me <laughs> in any in any party. It's the it's the disabled people of color room. It's just 
I great guess, and I've heard amazing things about like the disability studies conferences. Like one of my good friends is mm. working in that, and she was saying how it would be really helpful if, if I went into these spaces, or like I feel like it would really change my experience of being in conferences. Um, yeah, not all disabilities conferences are accessible oh. or friendly. I have to say, I have been in. Oh, this is funny. I have, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I had this utopian dream in my head. But I should have known better. But it's like with everything, right? Yeah. But but obviously they will. They should be, you know, more attuned to what access is and access needs. Um, and, and yeah, there's there's just building, you know, a coalition around an understanding that disability studies matters to everybody, even able people, because mm-hmm. it's so ableist, this idea of productivity and worth being measured by productivity. Mm-hmm. And I think that's something that a lot of people are um, realizing is really unhealthy and not good for anybody's wellness. And... Um, the concept of overwork is overrated and, and this notion of pushing people beyond their limit is not great um, but not recognizing that disability studies and disabled perspectives have been saying this for literally centuries right? Mm-hmm. and we need to learn from that and acknowledge okay how do we create societies where everyone is worthy mm-hmm. that you know you don't have to be quote-unquote productive or behave a certain way or move a certain way or think a certain way or speak a certain way or speak at all to be considered worthy. Yeah, and I guess what is particularly striking to me is the way that you see the intersections of race and disability play out in the academy with foundational people in the field like Audre Lorde, right? Yes, um, Gloria Anzaldúa was disabled. Um, I think was it Claudia Tate who died recently in Black Studies? Oh, I'm um, sorry, but there's like there's this whole gen- all these generations of people who've been so formative for feminist and queer color, like uh, Jose Munoz dying in his 40s. Oh God, yeah. Like it's it's kind of a he's an a big epi- part of my thesis. An, an epidemic, and I think it's perhaps is the right term to what an epidemic of the way that uh, this overwhelmingly impacts academics of of color, right? Yeah, um, I mean in late capitalism, definitely, and I will say that it's not uncommon for me to give a talk or a performance and then afterwards be approached by an academic usually woman or non-binary right and or a person of color who says oh actually I you know I mean I've had people disclose things to me that they can't disclose to their to the institution they Mm -hmm. work in because they are you know afraid of getting fired or you know they don't want that to be they it's just they don't want that to be anything other than private for now right Mm -hmm. Um, And that is perfectly fine. I do not think anybody should have to disclose anything without, you know, um, against their will. And I don't think that, I think that it's really important to define for yourself who you are. If you don't want to call yourself disabled, okay, you know. Um, But I think what is important is to recognize these oppressive structures that uh, mean we have to hide important parts of ourselves Mm -hmm. and oftentimes lie about our capabilities Um, and injure ourselves and make ourselves more vulnerable Um, and for me it's kind of been actually a blessing that I was so incredibly incapacitated I used to be paralyzed my entire right side Mm. um, that I was so incredibly incapacitated and had to relearn how to walk and speak and do things Um, that (laughs) I mean if you'd seen me when I was you know um, unable to to really move you you would have been like oh yeah she's a disabled person right so there was no coming out at Mm -hmm. at that point but so it, it made me quite proud and honest about my body in a way that I think has been very um, useful and I think once somebody said I overheard somebody say something like oh yeah and you're not ashamed of it and it that was kind of hurtful you know because as though it was something to be ashamed of yeah. right it's just a different kind of living um, 
It reminds me that there's an essay I really like from Disability Studies by Ellen Samuels. I think it's My, my Body, My Closet or something like that. Yeah. And about like the way that it does, like that using that similar language of the coming out does and does not work for disability studies and how, tr- how problematic yeah. um, using that tends to be. I also wanted to say that one thing I appreciate about the tube, uh, of course the famous London Underground, is that <laughs> they actually do have seats that are marked uh, for people who need it. Which is not something you see very, at least in a lot of the other public transit systems I've been in. Oh, and you're having a button. And so, yes, I've been seeing this button. Like, there's, there's a special button you can get that says, uh, 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 you're holding it up right now, and it says, please offer me a seat. Yep. There's also one for people who are pregnant as well. But I really appreciate it. And there's one of, the, one of the, I can't remember which line it is, but on the reserved seats, it even says, like, not all people with disabilities not all people are visible. visible. Yeah, yes. nice. And I thought, I was like, oh my God, I can't believe this is being acknowledged in a public space. This is in the subway. Right. Like I took a photo of that because like, that just <laughs> blew my mind. It's really, that is really great. Although I will say that I still can't take the tube because not every tube station is accessible. Oh yeah. And sometimes I, I, when it says it is, um, I was, once I remember, like, I, I went to a tube station because it said there was a lift there online. I checked and then it turns out it was a service lift and they wouldn't let people in. <laughs> That's very helpful. I know. So just in case, because I've had bad experiences, um, uh, yeah, I just take the bus now. I'm able to take the bus. I used to not be able to, but no, yeah. So that is, it's progress, right? It's, it's, we're getting somewhere. Um, and, and that's great. Um, yeah, different kinds of buddies. Let's see. Um, so I think art is so central to you. I know that you're really interested in public art and what does that, what does that look like? What does that mean? Right. Um, well, I think it comes from, uh, okay, being Indonesian, there are so many, there are hundreds of languages in Indonesia, right? And a lot of them are becoming increasingly um, endangered. And a lot of our cultural history traditionally has been oral, and with the coming of colonialism, of course, where written laws um, uh, changed the, the way things were, orality has been really diminished. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think there has always been forms of public art in in my in my cultural history whether it's you know shadow puppetry all through the night in villages and wayang and, and wayang um performances or you know the tradition of pantun which is pantum um being recited back and forth and you know there were people who used to um in my mother's culture of minangkabau was was sumatran people you know people used to there were people who would memorize a thousand poems and and have them. I, yeah so i really I feel the loss of, of that in my life, but I also feel it's important to recognize that there's, there continues to be public art all the time in these um, increasingly endangered cultures that is that is important. So um, I feel so the concept that art is in a gallery, especially private gallery, and is commodified in a certain way um, is questionable even as I participate in that system, right, of galleries. <laughs> and of course that your object to study that painting is... is something held being held by some rich people somewhere right yeah except when it's loaned out and so uh, yeah and it also matters like to whom is it loaned out why isn't it in an indonesian museum you know or (laughs) like a lot of uh british uh paraphernalia from southeast asia it's held here in museums and vaults right Mm -hmm. so but so i was thinking that a really wonderful way to finish was perhaps if you could read us some of your poetry sure Uh, because you're just so multi-talented, and oh. before this interview, I was, I was look, trying to look up some of your work online, and one of the poems that I particularly liked that Oka wrote was about 
pineapples. So, (laughs) yeah. So I have to preface this by saying that um, there was a Javanese myth that went around when I was a young girl that I absorbed. Um, I don't know whether it was just something from older people in my family or if it was a wider Javanese myth um, that eating a lot of pineapples would give you vaginal discharge, like unhealthy amounts of vaginal discharge if you were a woman. Yeah, that's just a myth. And so I've never, I used to be really afraid of eating, of drinking pineapple juice or eating pineapples because of that weird myth. And um, I wrote this poem, Pineapple, and I was at an art residency in Malaysia and another artist had painted an enormous pineapple. And I just thought it was so hilarious that it was like a confrontation of my fear of excessive vaginal discharge. Anyway, so so I wrote this poem, Pineapple. Henceforth, fruit may never stand for woman as a matter of course, automatic simulacrum. Representing desiccation and death, its husk shrivels seeds, invariably consumed by the indiscriminate pulped ground chopped tossed force-fed syrup this pineapple on the canvas may only be a woman when laid right against an abstract background and cleaved by itself alone mane of forest feral fecund imposing monolithic millennia apart from the tales our grandmothers tell us of nanas's curse of vaginal ill health when eaten yet retaining all the menace of such myth a pox on you and your vaginas, it could say. But it loves the pith of a woman and would never strike fear in her heart like the murder of armored, segmented flesh, fork gone runny with sweet yellow juice. That's wonderful. Thank and I think you. that's a fabulous way to, to end by wetting people's appetites between <laughs> possibly pineapples and um, vaginas. And so. thanks for letting me read from my book rope and thanks for... Um, having me as a guest finally i'm a huge fan of the podcast and of your work in general so thank you and it's such a pleasure to get to meet you i guess to our listeners i do want to meet you too i like i love meeting our listeners yeah it makes me feel like there's something i do that's worthwhile of course what (laughs) but yeah thank you once again please uh look after yourself listeners if you don't already, please tell other people about us and take care of yourself once again. <laughs>